0: everyone and welcome back to another episode of World of Sharks, a podcast all about sharks, their relatives and their ocean habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. My name is Isla, I'm a scientist and science communicator for the Save Our Seas Foundation and every episode I have the very lovely job of sitting down with experts in shark science, conservation, education and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. Before we dive into today's topic, I just wanted to take the opportunity to give some shout-outs because a few weeks ago, I attended the annual conference of the European Elasmobranch Association, which was held in Brighton in the UK. And I met so many people there, so many incredible scientists, conservationists, researchers who are all working to make a better future for sharks and rays. It was really inspirational. I learned so much. And there are some people there who listened to the podcast and had some really lovely comments and made the time to come up to me and say hello. So hello to you if you are listening and thank you so much for making my day. It was really lovely to hear from you. And also a big shout out to the whole team at the Shark Trust who hosted the event Everything ran so smoothly, it was organised so well, and I know there was a huge amount of work behind the scenes, so thank you for putting on such a fantastic event, and I hope you've all had some time to put your feet up, because you really do deserve it. Okay, on with today's episode. A few weeks ago, we travelled to Daros Island in the Seychelles to meet Ellie and Dillis, who are research officers at the Save Our Seas Foundation Daros Research Centre. And we learned all about this amazing wilderness, the wildlife that lives there, and the research that the team carry out at the centre. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, pause this one and go and listen to it first because it really sets the scene very nicely for today's episode because we are heading back to Daros to speak with Dr. Rob Bullock and Henrietta Grimmel, who are the research director and programme director for the centre. I wanted to chat to them because not only do they live and work in this amazing place but they also have a lot of experience in translating science into conservation action, conducting research and turning it into something that can be used to either inform policy or management and conservation strategies. As you will find out, Rob and Henrietta have been part of this kind of work all over the world and in many different contexts. For example, Rob was a research associate with the Marine Biodiversity Unit at IUCN, where he assessed extinction risk for marine species and contributed to red list assessments. And Henrietta has two master's degrees, one of which is in maritime spatial planning, where she developed a strong interest in how humans interact with the marine environment and how we can encourage sustainable use. But where they are now, Daros, the Seychelles, is a perfect example of putting those experiences and knowledge to practice. As Ellie and Dillis discussed at the end of their episode, in 2020, the government of the Seychelles announced its commitment to expanding marine protection. This would include placing around 400,000 square kilometers of its seas under protection. That's an area nearly the size of California and twice the size of the UK, just for reference, which would now become marine protected areas. Daros Island and St. Joseph Atoll were included as part of this wider plan and are now on their way to becoming fully-fledged marine protected areas. The research that the Save Our Seas Foundation has carried out at Daros over the last decade has been instrumental in getting these declarations over the line, and seeing that these incredible habitats and the vast diversity of life that they support are recognised nationally and adequately protected. This was such positive news which I think a lot of us could really do with right now and it really should be celebrated. The Seychelles are really leading the way in their commitment to marine protection and I'm sure there's a lot of governments who could take a leaf out of their book but one thing I really wanted to talk about on the podcast today is how complex these processes can be. Because the story doesn't end with getting the MPA designated. It's actually the first few chapters in a very long and very complex story. I want to talk about the whole process from deciding what science needs to be done to communicating those results to policymakers to the management and the monitoring of the MPA and I sort of really wanted to get across just how complex and long-term these processes really need to be if they are to be effective and sustainable. This is a particularly relevant topic as governments and world leaders are looking to increase their protected area coverage in response to the 30 by 30 targets set by the Global Biodiversity Framework and Rob and Henrietta are the perfect people to talk about it. In this episode, we talk about the history of Daros and revisit some of the magic of the area that we talked about with Ellie and Dillis, but this time from Robin Henrietta's perspective, and that includes some very curious mantas. We also talk about Robin Henrietta's journey and how they've got to be to where they are now, and of course, we discuss all of the wonderful research happening at Daros, the new MPAs and look to the future of both the Daros Research Centre and marine protection on a wider scale. So grab your snorkels again and get ready to head back to the tropics. Let's dive in to our episode. Hello Rob and Henrietta and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Hello,
1: Isla. <laughs> Hi, Isla. Thanks for
0: having us. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Um, we're really, really happy to have you on. And I'm so excited to learn more about Daros and learn about a lot of the really, really cool and very important work that you guys have been doing out there. Um, but first, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. And we start the podcast with the same question for every single guest. I imagine this will be quite a hard question for both of you, given where you live now and sort of what you've done in your career up to this point, but it is, do you have an experience with the ocean that kind of stands out for you as like most memorable or particularly special? Uh, And Henrietta, I will come to you first.
2: So um, last year, July, we were doing one of our regular mentor camp dives, which was a a shore dive um, doesn't take very long. We were coming back from having swapped the camera that sits at a cleaning station. And there's a little bit of a reef outcrop, which isn't too busy, but some, there was a manta that came across it, past us. And then there was actually more mantas that were shortly behind that. And uh, one of them, whose name is Jackson, who we had never seen in person before, only on the camera um decided to hang out with us for a bit while he was getting cleaned by a couple of fish. And um, oh, wow. especially Rob got very close uh, passes where and I got to see that interaction. We get mantas close. We've both had mantas close. But this is different because we don't know if this has ever seen people, but he was less than an arm's length from Rob's face. Like his face was in in Rob's face. Um, Like he could have touched his eyeball, um, (laughs) which of course he didn't, but (laughs) like, and and it was quite a long encounter as well. And he kept coming around. Yeah. We both generally enjoy these moments. I think our whole team does, but it was a particularly special one. one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It really did stand out. I think, He very deliberately came around close to us because obviously we're not moving close to him. So, part of the rules of these encounters is that we sit back and let them do their thing. And he was very deliberately passing by close to us over and over again. And, like, I always cringe to say it because, like, scientists, you're not supposed to say this hippie stuff or to anthropomorphize and things like that. But, like, he's coming by and I can watch his eye following, like, looking into mine as he's passing by me and i know that's like a, a bit of a you know thing to say but it, it you could see him sort of figuring me out like what are you um and that was really a really special encounter for for martin
0: yeah i mean i don't think that's like i don't think that's weird to say at all because there's such we know they're such an intelligent species to think that it's actually like looking you in the eye and trying to figure out kind of what you are and what you're about and actively being curious and seeking you out to have an interaction with I think that's totally plausible any scientist that's listened to that and doesn't think it's really cool and awesome I'd question yourselves <laughs> I mean I've never seen manta rays I've never seen manta rays in the wilds but I've heard stories about encounters with them and it just seems to touch people in a certain way I suppose just because they are you know they're so intelligent I guess it's similar to like interacting with like a cetacean or something that you know is um has that kind of level of intelligence and is actively choosing to interact with you. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think, I mean, you don't like to, you don't like to discriminate against the, the lesser-brained uh, marine animals like some of those.
0: <laughs> Baskin sharks springs to mind.
1: <laughs> exactly. We have some incredible interactions with those, but there, there is something, something special about these animals and about the kinds of interactions that you can have with them. And yeah, they do, they do stick with you. Yeah. But I mean, that, that dive that we happen to come across Jackson, just generally that dive in itself, because we do that so frequently, I think we've gotten to know that little route down to this cleaning station so well, we've dived a hundred times and it's like our back garden. And that is a really (laughs) sort of memorable ocean experience for us as well, because we know it intimately and we know all of the different things along it. And we know when something's different. We know when something new comes along that's not normally there. We know where to find the things that are normally there. So there's, Things like that that I think really are special for us as well. Doing that dive generally,
0: yeah. Imagine having that as your back garden. That's pretty. That's pretty insane. <laughs> but that was your. That was kind of like a, a memorable experience for you. But where, when did you first form a connection with the ocean? So, Rob, I'll come to you first because I went to Henrietta first last time.
1: Um, this is a really cliche answer as well, actually, which is on my little bio on the um SNSF <laughs> website. But so, David Attenborough. <laughs> is how i first formed the connection to the ocean so when i was younger i watched all these bbc nature series and you know they're like in a series where there's there's one on the savannah and there's one here there's one there one in rainforests and then there was always this one in the ocean the ocean episode which just grabbed me in a way that the others didn't and it was this entirely different world Um, that at that time, when I was young, I had no experience of whatsoever. The way that those documentaries are done, just, I don't know, I found them them incredible anyway, but it was always that episode, that episode I always looked forward to the most when when it came to this marine one or ocean one. Um, I think that's what originally sparked my interest and my curiosity. And then my Nana um, always sort of fed that curiosity. So she was like, anything that I got into, she was always buying books and things to to support that so it was like reading she would buy me a book um on yeah the marine environment on sharks on whales or whatever and sort of feed that curiosity so sir david attenborough and my nana are where i first found the connection with the ocean what
0: what a combination (laughs) sir david he has featured a lot in this podcast just for that reason of just influencing so many people's careers. It's its pretty incredible. But Henrietta, how about you? How did you first form a connection to the ocean? Well, it wasn't so David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I'm actually <laughs> also not entirely sure. Um, I know I've had a bit of interaction as a child with the ocean, but my parents are not people that go to the sea for a holiday or anything like that. So I think it must have been more like uh, in my teens, when I was about 15, I did an exchange year in the in the US in Seattle and took a marine science class because um, I was interested in it at the time, I guess. And the good students or certain students were picked to go on a field trip to Hawaii. And I was one of them. And there were some students that learned to dive even for that trip, or maybe were able to do it already. Um, but I wasn't at the time. So I was one of the snorkelers. And we did a lot of snorkeling and getting in the water and drawing fish that we'd seen, um, learning fish species. But I think I remember being in a bay where we were snorkeling and there was some, I don't know what fish, but they were kind of uh, following us, which I found creepy. But the divers came back and they were like (laughs) super happy with their dive. And I was like, well, I want to dive, I guess. I want to know what that's like. I'd been a swimmer and then a rower. So I've always had a connection to water, but fresh water, Mm -hmm. which I still prefer.
0: (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) No discrimination here. (laughs) No discrimination.
1: Cancel the podcast.
2: (laughs) But it was in that year, I think, that year and that uh, trip um, that started it, which... I then got back to later in my career um, and reconnected to that,
0: I think. Mm, well, get, getting the chance to go to Hawaii and experience like, that sort of ecosystem, I'm not surprised I planted a little bug. That would have done the same for me as well. We're talking about Daros now. And before we actually sort of get into the research center itself I wanted to talk about what your roles are and I don't know this was a question that I put in there and I was like I don't know if they will have a typical day in the life (laughs) Um, but what does a day in the life for you look like? I would definitely say there isn't a day in the life. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I knew that as soon as I wrote that down.
1: (laughs) A day in the life is very varied right so it's that's one of the things that we're lucky to have in this job one of the reasons that that we love it so much is that it's a very varied role for both of us. And on a Monday, you can be in the the office doing some data processing, data analysis, um, writing emails to different people that are wanting to do projects here, just dealing with the admin of running the center. On the Tuesday, we're out on the water swimming with manta rays. On the Wednesday, we're doing a reef survey, scuba diving on the Thursday we're maintaining some of the equipment things like that so it's it's really a varied week and that can be fantastic for us it can also be exhausting and challenging um we have a lot on at any one time but I think yeah the variety of stuff is kind of the day in in the life is different every day
0: which sounds awful to be honest it sounds absolutely terrible (laughs)
1: Well, you smallest violins and
0: all that. No, it sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and one day, of course, you might be poked in the eye by a manta, Or <laughs> Jackson. Who knows? It's 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 uh, it's the challenge for us is to
2: balance the fieldwork with everything that is needs to be done in the office because you always have to follow up in the office. It's not all about the nice stuff you get to do out on the water or in the water you then have to follow up not just with data but yeah incoming emails and outgoing emails take a decent amount of time um i am as the program director have to do a lot with general scheduling um and logistics especially logistics and helping hr with permitting and organizing for visiting researchers which can be phd students or other research groups or a research intern, um, making sure that everyone's sent in everything that they need to, but also has filled out everything that we've provided them with, everything that we need to provide them with, making sure we stay organized in our labs, um, that our sample freezer gets defrosted when it really needs to. (laughs) Um,
1: That was yesterday.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Whatever, Sunday Sunday night, Monday night, Rob and I and um, some of our team were out on the beaches of St. Joseph tagging turtles um, so it's been a very varied week actually
0: which is amazing and it kind of makes the, I find this a lot of time, a lot of the time with science, I say this a lot to people who want to become scientists I'm like it isn't always the field work, like the field work is just like a snapshot of it but the fieldwork makes the stuff like, I mean, I've never had to defrost a freezer in my line of work, but it makes that kind of stuff, or the like more admin-y stuff, actually worth it in the end. So that's kind of what your roles are, but I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the Daros Research Centre and... Kind of like the history of it because it just celebrated its 10th anniversary last year was it that's right yeah but can you talk us through the history of the center yeah yeah sure
1: so uh the the center came into existence in 2004 and in 2012 came under the management of the save Our Seas foundation and so, yeah, as you say, Ela, it's bit it was a 10 year anniversary of the Save Foundation Daros Research Center last year, coming up on our 11th anniversary now. And yeah, over that time, it's been this um, incredible variety and amount of really great quality research that's been done here. The place is incredible. And the research that's been done here has been incredible as well. Um, so I think at, at this point, there's about, I think there's mo- now more than 25 um, projects that the center has supported over that time. And I believe it's now 15 masters and PhD um, projects that have been supported of those, of those 25 um, over that time. Um, so there's a lot of really cool work that's been going on over the years and some really interesting findings.
0: Yeah. And everything, everything that I've heard, because I've been part of Save Our Seas for coming up to three years now, um, and everything that I've heard about Daros is just like how incredible it is and how special a place it is. And I suppose like you can't really imagine it unless you've actually experienced it for yourself, or at least that's kind of what I've heard from some people who have who have visited. In your own words, why is Daros such a special place the variety
2: of of life that you can find around here um i mean i i imagine it must have been more incredible back in the days before any explorers uh hit the area and coconut plantations and things of the like i imagine much more seabirds at the time and seabirds and the guano brings nutrients to the to the sea so I think it's the diversity of life, though, that is present and the different life stages of species that occur here as well.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I got I got to say the same thing because it's it's true. It's um, like nowhere I've ever been before. It's like, such, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, you want I want maybe I'm trying to be David Attenborough too much, but it really is teeming with life. It's <laughs> it's, it's really special. And I say it all the time, but St. Joseph in particular, when we go in to do research in St. Joseph and you're sat on a little 16-foot skiff in the middle of the St. Joseph atoll, it is my favorite place in the world. Um, And it's really hard to pin down why it is that it's so special, but it just feels really special. It feels like what things should be like. Being out here and being so isolated Mm -hmm. from everything, obviously not completely isolated from from the impacts of, of of humans, and but it does feel like this is what what it should look like. This incredible variety of life. When we're we we're, um, taking the boat in, as Henrietta says, you can only get in over the high tide. So we take the boat in over this one little section, and there's green t- juvenile green turtles and Hawksbill turtles flying around all over the place, and just huge amounts of different kinds of fish. Get to the back, and there's rays of all different sizes and types and there's the baby sharks all up by the by the shoreline and there's incredible amounts of frigate birds flying overhead it is just a really spectacular pristine near pristine and yeah special special place
0: yeah and you, you mentioned it's not obviously free from human impacts do you do you have fishing activities kind of around where you are or is daros like completely closed off
2: yes there's definitely
0: fishing Um, There's not necessarily fishing
2: close to shore, except for when fishing vessels anchored for shelter or on moorings um, overnight, they might attempt to fish. There's some recreational fishing. So the the industry for recreational fishing catch and release is quite big, as is the fly fishing industry in Seychelles. So atoll environments are very popular with certain visitors um, and therefore certain charters and things like that. That come and bring these visitors, so the lagoon system is the and the the surrounding reef of that lagoon are what um attracts most activity, I guess, and the drop off because this drop off to the northeast is not so far, it brings all kinds of different fish, it's good for tuna, sailfish, things like that, so the recreational fishers I think quite like the area. And then you have artisanal and semi-industrial vessels from seychelles that fish in the Amaranths or you know, sea cucumber guys collect sea cucumbers around the Amaranths. So we see them often more on stopovers, not fishing extensively near near shore. Um Daros is, is like Daros and St. Joseph are not fully closed off in that sense. So you do have activities, but Let's say more focused on the atoll than on DAROS next door.
1: The other the other part of that as well in terms of impacts is a climate change. And there's been some of the studies that have been done in the past mm. here have sort of evidenced the effects of some of these acute warming events like those of, of twenty sixteen and things like that. So the, That was
0: the coral bleaching event, was it?
1: Yes, sorry, yes, right. Yeah. The twenty sixteen bleaching event really impacted the coral cover around here. So there was one one study that was um published back in twenty nineteen that was Led by um, Elena Gudutzis, um, that showed the massive declines in coral cover around the islands um, during and after that that bleaching event. Mm,
0: but th- that paper did it. Did it also show that they can recover, or they they had recovered?
1: <laughs> it certainly idea. did. <laughs> Certainly did. Did you read that paper? It sounds like you did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> it did show that there's at least potential for recovery, yes. Um, and that's the nice thing about, and I think, I'm think i sure we'll talk about this, but the, one of the nice things about gathering long-term data is how you're able to actually look at these kinds of things. Not only look at the effects of climate change and things like that, but also the capacity for recovery. And yeah, the, that's the kind of information you can only access through these long-term monitoring programs. Mm.
0: In 2020, the water surrounding Darros and the St. Joseph Atoll were gazetted as marine protected areas as part of the larger um, marine spatial plan, which was brought in by the government of the Seychelles. And I wondered if you could kind of explain a little bit about what that means. All right, so in
2: um, March 2020, uh, there were marine protected areas of different levels gazetted um, in Seychelles. So they made a big announcement back then about we are now protecting 30% of our ocean or our EZ, our exclusive economic zone. Gazetting at that point only, or since then has meant boundaries of these individual zones are like coordinates are published, coordinates are law, but the zoning itself some more changes to old laws and acts had to be done. So there is uh, something called the Nature Reserves and Conservancy Act, and there was a revision last year from so 2022 bill that, and then the act went through the political system, and that commenced on the third of July this year. So as of the third of July this year. Around Daros, um, there is a rectangular marine protected area of a zone one level, which means it is a marine national park. And a national park, like Anne in the inner islands, means automatically no take. So you're not allowed to take anything out or alter the seabed. St. Joseph is part of a large zone two that covers all of the Amaranth's. The, even north of the Mahe Plateau, so that's the inner islands, and goes very far to south and east to fishing grounds called Fortune Bank. And a zone two is a sustainable use zone. So uses are allowed, but they should occur in a sustainable manner. The marine spatial plan is what, where all the zoning comes from. And the marine spatial plan started like nearly 10 years ago. It is supposed to come into legal effect as of the next 1st of January, um, if all goes well, with some delays. So currently that means that national parks are now in effect. So there's more national parks, marine national parks than there were before July of this year. Um, It means fishing is not allowed anymore around Daros, for instance, but What it means beyond that, um, is not yet legally defined. Um, there's many different processes ongoing and the Marine Spatial Plan comes with allowable activities for each of the zones. And that will inform people the most of, okay, what can I do where, or what conditions need to be in place so that I can do this or do this, um, but it's Ongoing, and in each place needs a management plan to help define that for each place and um, clarify who's got authority, who's governing, who's enforcing because a, th- a management authority it doesn't have to be the same as the agency that does enforcement of the rules and regulations. Um, and rules and regulations need to be law first as well. So management plans need to be law first before they can be enforced. So from the outside always, um, and politicians and news always like to, of course, say, okay, we're declaring NPAs. We've now got protected areas. It's a a lot more complicated than it looks maybe from the outside. Um, These processes are very long and complex and involve a lot of people at a lot of different levels if they're done properly. Um, and Seychelles is certainly trying to do it um, to the best of its abilities um, and comprehensively, but that means it takes time, a lot of time. Um, and this is, it's never fast and easy at all.
0: No, exactly. And that's exactly why I'm in a job is because it's so complicated and takes such a a long time. I mean, especially with marine protected areas, you're talking about places that have multiple different people with multiple different interests who are involved, who are going to be affected by whatever form of management comes into place. So it's not kind of like the end of the story when a marine protected area is announced or designated. It's kind of almost like the beginning of one, in a way. For sure. Especially when it comes comes to people and...
2: There's big users and there's small users. There's politics and there's economic interests. Um, There's so many different varied things at play. And often, unfortunately, it's sometimes the small people, the the little users that get forgotten. Um, And we're trying our best. And we're definitely not in high capacity of time or people, but we're trying our best to speak to as many of these users of our space as we can in order to write a management plan or management plans that actually can be effective because if you override and ignore users then you just get problems down the line where you have petitions that you know certain zoning should be revoked and high level politicians have to get involved and um it gets a bit messy, and some of that is on is happening here, but it's it's also happening in Europe and mm. other places. It's the, the main spatial planning comes from okay. a good place, but it's it is the uh, <laughs> and it's complicated on paper, and it's even more complicated in a on a person to person
0: level. I think. Mm. It is, yeah. Um, And I mean, you can have, uh, we say this a lot, and because my expertise is like conflict management and negotiation and and like ocean governance and all that stuff, or the messy sort of human side of things. Um, And we say, we say a lot that it's, you, you can have the best process in the world you can have all, like try your best with participation and engagement and you're still going to get like disagreements somewhere down the line just because of the nature of conservation and nature of humans with different interests being involved and so it really is kind of like focusing on like the actual process itself rather than what the outcomes are going to be or like looking at both of looking at both of them rather than just concentrating on on the outcomes which is really important but yeah, it's it's a it's definitely it's definitely a long a long term process. Kind of needs to be ongoing as long as the marine protected area is in place. Adaptive, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So it can be hugely challenging. But one very important aspect of even getting a marine protected area talked about, or you know, getting protections put in place in the first place, is the research and the evidence to explain like how important this area is and we've been talking throughout this podcast about how important like daros research center has been and you have like a whole decade of of really important and uh, more importantly like long-term research there that was actually you know used to inform these marine protected areas and i wondered if we could talk a little bit about that of some of the monitoring programs and some of the research that you guys have been doing over the years to sort of build up to this point
1: yeah, definitely. Um I think as you say, um and as you guys have touched on with the MPA process, conservation in general is a long game. Um and good conservation is evidence-based and evidence is good science. Um and over the last 10 years there's been a lot of really great people that have that have come through and worked at this center that have produced a lot of really great science. But yeah, the the Again, we went. We talked about like the magic of the place being the variety of life that obviously breeds a variety of different kinds of research as well. So there's all of the long term monitoring programs that we've had ongoing for, you know, since its inception, since the center's inception. And then there's been these targeted projects where MSc and PhD students have come in to look at a particular research question with a particular answer. Um, and you know, I've studied that intensively. So there's different, um, different kinds of things going on as well with the research. But in terms of the monitoring, some of the longest term monitoring programs have been for the, um, nesting turtles. So we work as part of a broader, um, data collection process throughout Seychelles, um, with someone called, uh, Dr. Jean Mortimer known locally as Madame Toti, um. And she is a legend of of the game, and has been living in Seychelles for a long time, uh, and helps to coordinate these these inter-island data collections for nesting green and hawksbill turtles, both highly endangered species and historically exploited in Seychelles. <clears throat> so, I mean, what does the monitoring look like in reality? Walking around beaches. Um, so we we walk we. we monitor the beaches for nesting emergencies. So we're looking for tracks of these turtles as they come up to nest. And we're recording information on the numbers of tracks, where these tracks are, whether the turtle laid, things like that. Um, And then Henrietta mentioned earlier on that we were over on St. Joseph tagging turtles as well. So we do have like a long-term tagging program for the adult nesting females. Um, More recently, We're looking at building that out to understand more about how St. Joseph is used by these post-pelagic, these younger turtles of both species. Um, Looking at the numbers of uh, of those animals there, like what are the population sizes like, um, and where are they, what habitats are they using, things like that. That's the turtles. Um, And then since 2011, we've been annually doing what what I call like a health check, annual coral reef um, survey, looking at the reefs all around Daros and St. Joseph and gathering standardized monitoring uh, data from that, which is in line with other monitoring processes in the country. Again, using the same kinds of methods to gather the same kinds of data. Um, And again, more recently, looking at enhancing that further with some novel technology and things like that. Um, Manta rays we've talked about how much we love the manta rays and we're monitoring them regularly as well, so.
0: Hello, editing Isla here, talking to you from the future. Um, I just wanted to drop in here and say that there will be a slight audio change because we had some, internet problems, Rob and Henrietta do live in a very remote place and so we had to switch to Zoom so the sound might sound a little different to what it was before, it's not bad, you can still hear us loud and clear Uh, but just to point that out and to let you know that you're not going mad, we did have to switch over. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: One of of the other major long-term monitoring programmes that we have is for the reef manta rays So Dallas and St. Joseph are a really important aggregation site for reef mantas um, in the region. Um, We have mantas that are regularly here um, and in good numbers. Um, And we monitor those populations in a couple of ways. So we do weekly surveys where we take our boat out and we survey the near shore areas. And when we find mantas, we hop in and free dive with them. Um, And we do that because each individual manta, um, reef mantas have white bellies with black splotchy patterns all over them. And each of those patterns is unique, like a fingerprint. So if we can get underneath the mantra and take a picture, we have an uh, individual ID. So that makes for really great data. So we often will go around and where we see mantas, we record where we find them, we hop in and we get a picture of the belly. And that helps us understand who's here, when they're here, who they're with, how often they come. And all of that data is really important for, for conservation. Um, And we also monitor several cleaning stations around the islands as well that the mantas regularly use, Um, and we go down and dive those cleaning stations and put cameras there, which are sort of set down on the seabed facing upwards, taking pictures every few seconds, and then when the mantas come in to clean, we're getting those those belly pictures that we need to identify which mantas are here again and, and when. Um, so that's the monitoring for the reef mantas. Alongside that, we're monitoring the populations of the juvenile sharks. So we have two species of shark that use the St. Joseph Atoll as an estuary site that we that we gather data on: um, the blacktip reef shark and the sicklefin lemon shark. Um, so we're continually going in on a regular basis and doing a what's called a mark recapture study with those. So we're capturing these animals, tagging them, releasing them back into the environment and unharmed. and we're doing that over a regular period we're able to gather information on how big the populations are that are there what's the survival rate of those populations where the animals are where they go um as well as things on their their growth and their condition and their success um and there's a, b- a bunch of other stuff as well with different species so we sort of, we monitor um the ground nesting birds on daros we have a um a bird called the wedge tail shearwater that we do regular census for we have our Dabra giant tortoise on daros that we're continually monitoring we do marine litter surveys we're now doing some mangrove restoration so um there's a huge variety of stuff that's going on and then we also um maintain these these long-term environmental monitoring devices these temperature loggers that we have dotted around and the acoustic receiver array as well so um set up for a previous project our very own james lee um the, and used for a bunch of other projects as well that that acoustic receiver array is 80 receivers strong and spread across the the amaranth bank um and we maintain that array um so that we can continue gathering long-term data from that as well so that's that's the long-term monitoring stuff that we currently have going on in something of a nutshell even though i did go on maybe for a little while and obviously we alongside that we have these targeted projects and currently um some of the the ones that we have going on include a phd project for nico fassbender who's looking at why sharks might use uh, different reefs and which reefs are important to to different sharks better resolve um, the habitat requirements of these species both within and without uh, marine protected areas um and then we have another phd student um rachel Newsom, who's going to be coming and hopefully for the first time, attaching biologging devices to free-swimming mantas, um, uh, so we can wow. understand more about their behavior and energetics as well. So, a couple of really exciting projects that we've got going um, right now that have got these really interesting questions and really important questions for the conservation of these species.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't ever apologize for going into too much detail on this podcast. That's what we like here, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it definitely seems like you guys are being kept busy. And hopefully we can get Nico and and Rachel on the podcast, like when progress in their research and things like their project sounds super, super cool. But of course, like, you know, the kind of like producing and doing the science is one thing, but then to kind of turn it into something actionable, you actually have to communicate it to different groups of people, you know, different stakeholders and things. What are some of the ways that we can do that in terms of how do we translate? That science into something actionable, like policy or like a marine protected area designation, potentially. Um, Difficult question, I think.
2: Yeah,
1: I was <laughs> going to say that myself. I think, that's, I mean, around the world historically, I think that's one of the one of the trickiest things is that that sometimes there's quite the disconnect between the the research in the field, the research on the ground, the science, and conservation policy and conservation action. Um, and building those better connections between those is easy to talk about and much more difficult to do. As you guys talked about earlier, there's sort of the messy reality of dealing with these things. But there are there are ways that are, are being pushed forward um, and there's there's progress being made in a lot of arenas. And I think Hen can talk to this with, with regards to the MSP and the MPA process here in Seychelles, like something that's really encouraged us to reach out and connect with different stakeholders. Generally, we really try to um, maintain good relationships with a lot of different entities in seychelles including the relevant ministries and authorities that are ultimately responsible for actioning conservation in this country so i think there there are things you can do with that um and reaching public audiences that's something that i think save our seas has been doing incredibly well and as as the team in save our seas does a great job of of reaching public audiences with all sorts of different tools
2: yeah i mean we ourselves with social media and we, we're we trying mostly with a Friday weekly more educational reel to show more what our life is like and I actually think the way we're trying to translate our science and efforts into into action is actually not a direct route and maybe a long route but I think it is through our engagement with young Seishoa, with mm. young students through our dark Experience Kids Camps. But also we've now started doing a student field course for University of Seychelles uh, environmental science bachelor students um, to get them more, especially with them it's focusing on field methods and science and how to think about projects and how to go about projects and the skills for that, with of course the younger children, it's more about the immersion in the environment. Mm-hmm. But I think both those avenues alongside us trying whenever we have any type of capacity to have interns and research interns now this year, like for longer periods with us, it's that capacity building and trying to invest in the younger generations and seychelles which are gonna inherit all of this, which are going to be dealing with the MPAs and the, and the Seychelles Marine Spatial Plan um, review processes. And like, because it's going to be a thing for the future unless they just decide to stop it, but they can't afford to. So they, it's going to continue to be around. It's going to, the blue economy as well is going to become an increasingly mm. larger part of of Seychelles' interests. And um, they're going to need the ones that are, in their early twenties and the ones that are in their teens, to come into that space and take all kinds of different roles. And I think more than informing politics directly, which we do by talking to the, to the department of environment where our main contacts are and our connection is to permits and what we're doing. We're trying to do it with education and capacity building um, and even offering our, our skills to other to other entities and seychelles that you know we're happy to train others up or provide equipment so that other similar research can be done at other sites. And I think that's how we are that's our way of being actionable. Yeah, I think that's
0: really well said. Yeah, education is so, so, so important. And as we've been saying throughout this podcast, it's, you know, obviously not a simple thing. And none of this is easy or straightforward or has a kind of silver bullet answer to everything. It's just something that's going to be an ongoing process with lots of different facets to it. But it definitely sounds like, you know, Daros is such a special place. And I can imagine going there... You know, as a young person, or even like as an adult now, and just being completely, like as you say, seeing this, you know, almost pristine wilderness for the first time, and going, oh, okay, that's what things could be like.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, I mean, the whole we'll have to see how these MPA processes turn out, how they how they develop in the future, um, and how this changes and stuff. There's of course a big chance there, generally for Seychelles, of course, to do more. They are. They've put themselves on the map there, and for for Dawson and Saint Joseph, that's big opportunities as well. The chat. There's challengers involved around all of this, of course, as well with the different stakeholders. And there's definitely a a generational difference between the older and the younger ones. So a lot of people that are the active users in the space now are. It's dominated by the older generation, but of course, there's some new newer ones coming up. I think the awareness of the need to care and being more thoughtful about eating something or what does sustainability mean is, uh, that's much stronger in the younger generation. And Seychelles will have to lean on that moving forward with their protected area plans.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like looking forward to the future as well, like in terms of the future of the research centre, what direction would you like to take the centre in? So I
1: mean, off the back of what, what Hen just said, Seychelles has taken on these fantastic and ambitious initiatives. Um, and as I said earlier on, conservation is a long game, right? So they've got a long way to go and a lot to do. And they have some incredible people here. So I think for us, Hen mentioned that we, we're collaborating with different layers, uh, if you like, in country. So we're working with young school students, we're working with uh undergraduate students of the university. We're working with conservation professionals in the country. We're um really keen to see more of that. We see our role in this advancement of conservation in this country as providing as much support as we can to upskill um and enhance as many social researchers, scientists, conservation professionals as we can. That's where I think the the direction is for us. The Daros Research Centre is going to be around long after me and Hen move on, and I don't wish to put us out of the job, but I think for me, the direction of the centre will be that by the 20th anniversary, we've got social scientists running this place.
0: Yeah, um, and I think the work that you're doing now is just amazing. It's just so fantastic to... I mean you you mentioned earlier that people can kind of follow you on social media and 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 see um and see what you guys are up to and we'll leave links to all of that in the show notes so people can can go and check that out and I would highly recommend that you do because you just see the joy in in people's faces while they're rather while there at Daros. even you know all the people that work there and just the experiences that you have in the environment that you're in is just is just so incredible and it's been so wonderful to learn more about the center from both of you and the things that you're doing. It's been really really cool. We have come to the end of our podcast episodes. You know, an hour flies by so quickly and I'm even more convinced now that I need to come out and visit <laughs> in the no, sorry, I was-
1: oh
2: yeah
0: you need you to these happy smiley faces
1: no we we can use your expertise in management oh
0: god well it's not between (laughs) me (laughs) here well it'll fill you in on the scottish case study but i've got my hands full here at the moment um but i would be very very happy to to come out and, and see you guys and see everything that you've been talking about it just it just sounds so incredible um But I do have one final question. And, you know, we've talked about all of this really interesting and profound stuff around like long term research and marine protected areas and the challenges associated with that. And our final question is not as profound. Um, It's a little bit of a fun one. And this goes to both of you. So both of you have to have an answer for this. It is if you could be any species of shark, ray, skate, or chimera in the world what would you be and why i
2: have to say i'm not that familiar with the 500 plus species of sharks and such that's so okay so i would go my favorite one which ends up being the manta ray or specifically <gasps> the reef manta ray for reasons of i like being of a being of intelligence um i imagine that the way they glide through the water and sometimes can nearly stand still with like zero effort and strong currents probably probably feels like something that i don't know maybe a bird that flies can kind of empathize with that skill of movement with wings and not much effort and things like that but also because you have a social side so you're not you're alone sometimes but you're not alone all the time you can gather with others you perhaps can even have friends I mean we don't know for sure but something like that um but I would have to say and this wasn't part of your question but I wouldn't want to specifically be a reef manta ray in in the Maldives because <laughs> the Maldives is a shark and ray sanctuary um, ah. there's lots of mantas there definitely would not be alone when I'm feeding in Hanifaro Bay and uh I would not have to worry about getting fished out because I live close to the coast and I'm not in a country where this might happen. In Seychelles, I wouldn't get targeted either, but there is sometimes bycatch situations. So I just Mm -hmm. feel a bit more comfortable being
0: in the Maldives. You definitely have a lot of friends there, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) I just noted that she said she likes beings of intelligence and note separately (laughs) that she married me. Just saying. (laughs)
0: Um, <laughs> Don't put yourself down like that, Rob.
1: <laughs> how many people cheat and ask for more than one species?
2: No, you can't do
0: that. <laughs> oh, we've not had someone ask for more than one species before, but relationship... I imagine you're about to.
1: <laughs> I mean, but for me, I, so I did my my PhD research with uh, lemon sharks, and then over here we've got the the sicklefin lemon sharks. So. Negopron, brevirostris over in, uh, on the other side of the world and Negopron, Acutidens, yeah. And both of those species, I've worked with the juveniles of those for for years and I've worked with them in comparison to other species and they're just so feisty and so badass um, and they've got such little attitudes and they're <laughs> just cool. Um, so for me, lemons have always been my, my favorite just for, for that reason. I really enjoy working with them. There's some really amazing cool sharks out there. But yeah, I think lemons have to be have to be my favorite both species. So yeah, forgive me for cheating um and and picking two, but badass baby lemon sharks.
0: That's fine. That's fine. I thought you were gonna pick two completely different species. I think it's okay to pick like two species of lemon shark. I think that's okay. Um I thought you were gonna I go like I'm trying to
1: toss up between that and then a lollipop cat shark because I just like the name. Um uh... so- that was the other option <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's quite cool but like both very i love hearing people's answers to this because like both people have very different reasons as to why they pick their species so henrietta obviously like picked the manta like beautiful graceful very intelligent rob is a lemon shark for their feisty attitude i like it <laughs> that brings us to the end of our podcast episode thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast um at the end of your working day as well when you probably want to go and have your dinner and and settle down for the evening or go and you know stroll the beach and look for turtles which is probably what it sounds like you're actually going to be doing um, on the socials um but it has been so great to talk to both of you and learn more about daros Uh, and yeah hopefully i will see you both in person soon at some point
1: yeah, we hope so too. And thanks so much for having us. It's been, it's been a pleasure to sit and chat with you, Isla.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and produced by me, Isla Hodgson. Our amazing visuals are by Jamie Silver. Our lovely logo is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Robin Henry Etta for coming on the podcast and teaching us a little bit more about Daros and talking so openly about MPAs, about research. It was so lovely to talk to you and to learn from you. If you guys want to find out more about the work that they do at the center, you can follow Daros Research Center on Instagram and Facebook and as always we will leave links in the show notes to their website so that you can find out more. And if you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It really means a lot to us and it helps more people to find out how amazing sharks are and find out about all the incredible people who are working to protect them. And I think you'll agree, who doesn't want that? Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.